Well, I'm glad everybody uh, is here today. That's nice. I'm going to talk about uh, gratitude today, which is something I never talked about before. Because I really didn't see the importance of gratitude. And as it turns out, it, it can change your life. So it, back in the 1960s, I read a lot of self-help books. Win Friends, Influence People, Think and Grow Rich, the good stuff. How to make a lot of money. How to be your own boss. Because it's always up to you. Nobody's going to give it to you. You're going to have to take it yourself. And then you're going to have to find out how to do it. And, and if you just want to have like a regular life and fight to the top, these are really good books to read because it gives you an idea of what you're up against. In a couple years ago, a couple years ago, I was asked to do an interview on a cable video podcast. And, and the last question of the cable video podcast was, what are you grateful for? And I said, I'm really not grateful. I did it all myself. And, and then I thought about it, and I said, well, I could have at least said something more profound than that. <laughs> you know? So then, a couple months ago, UCLA Oral History Library approached me and said, we'd like to do uh, interviews with you. Five, six weeks of interviews. And we're going to put it in the Oral History Library at UCLA under the category of Buddhism in Los Angeles how it started, how you contributed to it or didn't. And, it, and it, was a, it was a long, extensive interview. It was like going into therapy, actually, you know, because it forced you to look back at why you are here today and how you got there. And then the gratitude question came up, you know. But this time I said, yeah, you know, there are a couple people that I am grateful for. I'm happy they were in my life. I'm happy they, they participated with me in the making of me. Okay, so, gratitude. Gratitude is the recognition of the interconnectedness and interdependence of all phenomena. Gratitude is the relative honoring the ultimate. Gratitude is coming to understand that you are never in this alone. And there are going to be people along the way that will help you whether you recognize their help or even if they recognized their help. It's the journey. So, the Buddhist guy. Who's the Buddhist guy going to be thankful for? What kind of gratitude will he extend? And to whom? Well, the first one, first guy, that I was grateful for in thinking back was Houston Smith. Because Houston Smith wrote a book. 
Now, he didn't know I was going to read his book. And I had a chance to meet him at UCLA, and he was just this little old man that sparkled, radiated. I'm going, you know, I went up to him and I said, you're the reason I'm a Buddhist. Now, he's not a Buddhist. He's like a Unitarian or Methodist or something. And he just had the biggest smile when I said that. He just had the biggest smile. He didn't say anything in response. He just smiled. And, but I had to say it. I was sort of forced into saying it because that book changed the course of my life. Okay. Now, I told you about Think and Grow Rich, Power of Positive Thinking. Well, in the late 70s, I found myself at International Buddhist Meditation Center wanting to learn meditation and wanting to learn Buddhism. And who was there? Who was the second person I'm going to be grateful to? And it is Shinzen Young. And some of you know him and some of you don't. But he is a guy that went to UCLA and got a degree in foreign languages or something. And then he went to Madison, University of Wisconsin. And from there he went to do some graduate work in Japan. And he became ordained as a Shingon monk. And somehow he got back to the United States and ended up as the vice abbot at IBMC. So I'm this sort of like green meditator who goes in and, and tries to meditate. And then there is this guy, Shinzen, who gives a Dharma talk after the meditation. And, and it was just the opposite of think and grow rich. It was just like, you know, don't think and be happy you're poor. You know? So he really opened my eyes to a lot of different ways of thinking, a lot of perspectives, a lot of possibilities that I had no clue even existed. But there is always that idealism that I put on people and expect them to live up to my expectations in the same way I expect myself to live up to my expectations. And Shinzen decided not to be a monk anymore. He had found somebody named Shelley that he really loved. <laughs> and I was so disappointed. How could a monk fall in love, I said to myself. Was he going to take off his robes and just wear regular clothes? Were they going to go on dates like normal people? And they ended up getting married. And I was given an invitation. I didn't go. I was so disappointed. Because I thought being a monk was sort of like the ultimate thing to be. I thought once you got there, you didn't want to be anything else. Then they went and formed Community Meditation Center, which is down the street from IBMC. It was on Eldon Avenue. And he and Shelley were there, and they had residents living in this wonderful two-story house, and they would have, like, Dharma talks, and they would have retreats. And then something significant happened again. Because he had sort of been this Zen guy and this Shingon guy and this Japanese guy. And then he went to India, and he took a Goenka retreat. And he came back, and he was completely different. I said, what the hell happened now? 
<laughs> He's talking about vipassana. What is vipassana? Mindfulness. He never talked about mindfulness. And now that's all he talks about is mindfulness. I'm going, man, it is so hard to hang in with this guy because he's going through all these changes and I just want to learn what Buddhism is. So I, I had to ask him, now this is after like a couple years, I had to ask him, I said, can you recommend a good teacher? <laughs> <laughs> and he said, yeah, I can. There's one down on Crenshaw Boulevard. His name is Dr. Ratnasara. And he's a Theravada elder from Sri Lanka. He's been a monk his whole life. He teaches early Buddhism. I said, okay, that's the guy I want to talk to. I'm going to go talk to Dr. Ratnasara. So he's the third guy I have great gratitude towards. And Dr. Ratnasara was pretty much an amazing fellow that I had no idea uh, how amazing he was until after he died. Now that's how it always works, you know? If you go to a memorial service, you find out a thousand things you never knew about the guy or gal that died. And you just wish you could talk to him one more time and go, wow, that is so cool. I didn't know. We never went there. Why didn't you tell me? But they don't. If they're really good, they're really humble, and they don't talk about themselves at all. So Dr. Ratnasara in 1957 was designated to the United Nations as the Sri Lankan representative. Oh. First monk ever to represent a country in, in the United Nations. He had like a PhD, he started a school. He did all these really cool things. And I hated school. And I was not intellectual. I was not, I, I, I was not a scholar in any form. I just was more intuitive and just wanted to learn stuff for me and try to become a better person. So Dr. Anasara came to America in 1980, and I met him in 1983, and I, I worked with him until he died in 2000. So he was like the, the guy I was with the most. And what he did is he sort of represented what it meant to be a Buddhist monk in the world, because he had been a, become a Buddhist monk at the age of 13. His parents gave him to the monastery. So as a boy, he was raised in the monastery, and then when he turned 20, he became um, a, a fully ordained monk. While he was here in Los Angeles, he started the Buddhist Sangha Council of Southern California, which is uh, a variety of Buddhist traditions coming together, talking about current events and what we need to do and how we can do it, but never about Dharma, because everybody comes from a different strain of Dharma. He started with Monsignor Royal Vatican, the Buddhist-Catholic Dialogue, in 1989. So Buddhists and Catholics came together to talk about stuff. And it still continues today, every month. He started the College of Buddhist Studies, and he talked me into going to the College of Buddhist Studies, even though I hated school. And, and I started to learn Pali, and ultimately, after many years, I got a BA in Buddhist Studies. So. I found something that I enjoyed studying and wanted to learn, and that's probably the only reason I succeeded in that school setting, because I wanted to learn, learn about it. I didn't want to learn math, I didn't want to learn history, I didn't want to learn any of that stuff while I was in school. But once I started to meditate and started to see my relationship to the world, that stuff just started to fascinate me. So I have a pretty extensive library and all that stuff that I never wanted to learn in school 
that I learned at my own pace and, and for my own reason. So Dr. Ratnasara was the one that suggested I go into ordination. He said, you know, you don't have much going on in your life. <laughs> you know, you could really do something with Buddhism. You know, it will, it will give you something to do every day. And, and people will respect you, not because of who you are, but because the robe you wear. You know, and they will give you food to eat, and it's a really a great life. And I said, but can I have sex? He said, no. I said, well, you know, that's really hard to give up because I've come to understand that humans are here for two reasons only. Number one, self-preservation. Number two, replication, to continue this species. So I'm, only, I'm going to let that whole thing go, you know, with all the beautiful women in Los Angeles. I'm going to go, no, no. I don't want any children. I don't want any intimacy. I don't want any partners. I just want to study Buddhism and meditate, you know. <laughs> so he, he went into great detail about the importance of, of not being in relationship. And I had never heard anybody say that before. Because everybody's always interested in relationship. But he said the problem with relationship is it's big commitment and it costs a lot of money. <laughs> you know, you're going to have to go on dates, you might get married, you might get a mortgage, you might get two car payments, you might have kids, you might have college tuition. You're going to have to work really hard for very long periods of time just to maintain that lifestyle. Because you're going to be raising children. And then when they're fully raised, they're just going to leave you and never say anything again. <laughs> you know, it's a thankless job and everybody does it. Except for the monks. The monks say, well, you know what? If I don't need all that money, I can have a life of simplicity. I can, I can evolve into something special because I'm not committed in a normal social way. I'm apart from that. So I said, well, you know, uh, do you got anything else? <laughs> he said, well, the most important part about not having an intimate relationship is this. All these people, and you see them especially spring and summer in Los Angeles, they're holding hands or looking at each other's faces, <laughs> you know, and they're, you know, talking about absolutely nothing important, you know, and you just, and, and it's so satisfying. And it, people find joy and happiness and love in all those situations. But the one thing that they will never find is freedom. And the idea of a Buddhist monk or nun is to be on the path to freedom. And freedom will allow you to see the world in a much different way. And I said, but freedom from what? He said, from suffering. He said, you're always going to suffer in a relationship. Sometimes less, sometimes more. And then every relationship has to end. They do not last forever. I've seen people married for 40 years, I said. Yeah, he said, but then one of them dies. So every good relationship... Every bad relationship has a time limit. And you will be disappointed when that ends. Wow, I said. 
you know, I had never thought about it in that way. And, and, and I was still a little, you know, unsure. He said, well, in Buddhism, it's a very gradual process. The first thing you do is you take eight precepts and you become a postulant. This is a way of, of deciding whether you want to go any further. So in 2000, and no, no, it was 1993, in 1993, I moved into IBMC, and I became a postulant. I became a person who was going to practice with the idea of becoming ordained. Now, IBMC is a meditation center, and uh, most people do not live in a meditation center. And it takes a certain kind of person to live in a meditation center. And when I moved in to IBMC in 1993, most of the people living there seemed crazy, <laughs> unstable. And I thought to myself, why am I living with all these crazy people? And then I realized, after a few months, that a lot of crazy people live in meditation centers because it's a healing center. It's a refuge. It's a place that you can relax and feel safe and work on yourself and become uncrazy. Whatever that is, become normal. So I became one of the crazy people with them, and, and we sort of, you know, gelled. It was sort of like you were all in this together. How can I help you? How can you help me? A year went by, and I decided to become a novice monk. Ten precepts, two years, a two-year commitment. And Dr. Ratnasara said... You've got two more years now to decide whether you want to go forward. At any time you feel it's not right for you, you can drop out. There, there is no stigma attached to that. The Buddhist way is you are a monk today. That's it. How long are you going to be a monk? I'm going to be a monk today. And then 20 years later, how long are you going to be a monk? I'm going to be a monk today. It's so I became a monk today for two years. Then they asked, well, do you want to go forward? Do you want to commit yourself to this? I said, yeah, okay. You know, I've been doing it long enough where I've seen the advantages of it. I got a lot of extra time. And when you don't have a lot of money and you have a lot of extra time, you sort of work on yourself. Instead of going to places that are exciting and traveling and being around large groups of people, because that usually requires a commitment of, of money and time. I didn't have the money, but I had the time. So I, I read a lot. I did a lot of things. And then, and then after five years, as a monk, then I got the red rope. We have a ceremony at IBMC. The first five years of your full ordination is an apprenticeship. And at the end of that apprenticeship, you are now evaluated again by your teachers and they give the red robe to you if they feel you are worthy. And the red robe allows you to have students or to start your own meditation center or just to stay there and be one of the guys or gals. So, so Dr. Ratnasara influenced me in, in, in so many ways and encouraged me to grow as a human being and encouraged me to find a lifestyle that was a benefit to myself and to others. Now, there was this guy named Jeff Gold. You probably never heard of Jeff Gold. Jeff Gold was a music guy. 
He was one of the first employees of Rhino Records, if you know where that is, or used to be. And then he, from there he went into AMI Records, and then he went into Warner Brothers Records and, and became a big guy, and then he retired at a young age. And he lived his passion then. His passion was collecting vinyl records. He collected it, collected them, and resold them. And, and, and he just loved to do that. I met him in 1998, lived in Venice, through a friend named Susan. You gotta meet this guy, he's really cool. He collects records. I said, okay. So we were talking, and Jeff Gold said to me in 1998, he says, you know, Kusla, you need a computer, man. I said, well, you know, I thought about that, Jeff, but they're really expensive. And, and, and I just don't have that kind of money. Okay, Jeff said to me, I will buy you one, but you gotta pay me back. I'm not gonna charge you interest, and I'm not gonna tell you how much time you have, but you gotta pay me back. I said, okay, sounds good. So I got a Bondi Blue iMac. Man, that was so cool. And there were little people inside the computer that talked to me. You know, said, welcome to the Apple world. Whoa. And, and what that allowed me to do was, was learn something new, but, but have an outreach through the entire world. So the first thing I did was create a web page with my name and my address. Took me a few weeks to figure it out. Then somebody gave me a used copy of Dreamweaver 2, which, <laughs> which was a website maker. And so I got some books and I got my Dreamweaver 2. And because I didn't have much money, I wasn't going anyplace. So I spent hours and hours in front of that little iMac learning all this stuff. You know, and then somebody gave me a used graphics program so I could make pictures smaller or bigger to fit into the web page. I'm going, wow, look at how good I am getting. And I would take these little pictures and I'd shrink them and I'd be so proud that I could shrink them and that they would fit. And when I saw my work online, I thought, I have made it. Look at this. Of course, nobody else was looking at it except for me because nobody knew it existed. So over the years, I, I learned more, and it has become a practice. And, and the practice has allowed me to build Urban Dharma, which is 2,500 pages. The practice has allowed me to figure out how to put videos on YouTube and have my very own YouTube channel, how to do podcasts and iTunes and have my very own podcast channel, and have this sort of global thing going on. Just because Jeff Gold said, you need a computer. And last but not least, there was Reverend Karuna. Now, Reverend Karuna was the abbess of International Buddhist Meditation Center. She was a senior student of Thich Tianan, who was the founder of IBMC. He had been teaching courses at UCLA, and his students wanted him to start a meditation center so they could practice with him. So Thich Tien in 1970 bought the house that I now live in, IBMC, it's the Zendo house, and Reverend Karuna and a variety of other people studied with him and took full ordination in the Vietnamese tradition. 
When he died in 1980, Reverend Karuna took over. And she ran it just up until a couple years ago. Now, in 1994, Reverend Karuna had a stroke. But she came from Hardy stock, and it just it slowed her down, but it didn't stop her. But it did make her think a little weird sometimes and say some stuff that either she was enlightened or the stroke affected her. <laughs> it was hard to tell which. And, and I really never appreciated her as much as I should. Because she, you know, I had, I had listened to Shinzen and I had gone to Dr. Ratnasara and she was teaching as well. But I, I never really appreciated what she had to teach because she was teaching in a different way, in a way that didn't really call to me or speak to me. And, and so I, I didn't look at her as being that important in my life. I looked at her as simply being my boss. Because in 1994, when I took my novice ordination, she said, we want you to work for us. I said, you really want me to quit my job? Yes, we want you to quit your job, and we want you to work for us as a novice monk, and we'll put you in charge of the residential program, because we need to have people living here. And it would be your job to go out and find good people who can afford to live here and pay their rent on time. And then if the room needs a little paint, you'll be the guy that paints it. And if the sink needs a new washer, you'll be the guy that puts the new washer in. And for that, because of that, we are going to give you a room to live in. And we're going to give you a few dollars each month, and we're going to give you health insurance. Whoa. If I had known then what I know now about health insurance, that would have been, how lucky am I? But I just took it as part of the job. These were the benefits of working. And so she was sort of like always my boss and always had the last say in things that happened at IBMC. And, of course, as will happen to all of us, then she died. And so I'm talking to the UCLA, and, and they say, well, are you grateful to Reverend Karuna? And I paused, and I said, absolutely. She's the one that gave me a place to grow. See, when you become a monk, everybody says, oh, that'd be so cool to become a monk. But then you've got to find a place to live. You know, and it's really expensive, really expensive to keep a person. You've got to get them food and clothing and a room to live in. And if they get sick, you've got to make them sure they don't die. And you've got all these things in. So most monasteries only have room for two or three monks, some more, if it's a huge monastery, because it's an expensive proposition to keep somebody alive. And Reverend Karuna never went in that direction, saying, you, you should be grateful that you're here because it's really expensive to keep you here. And I thought in my own mind, well, I'm working for you. I'm changing those washers. I'm finding people to live here. Most of them, you know, not so good, but they, <laughs> paid, <laughs> but they paid their rent occasionally. And, and then it just dawned on me, you know, without her, I could have never made it to where I am today. Because she gave me this place to fail. She gave me this place to succeed. She gave me a small enough pond to be a big fish. And I'm thinking, how can you ever repay somebody for that? 
you know, and, and she, I don't think she looked at it that way, and I can tell you for sure I didn't look at it that way. But, but without having a place to work on myself, I wouldn't be here today. And without having Jeff buying me that computer, I wouldn't have an online presence. And without having Dr. Ratnasar teaching me how to be a monk, not so much through what he said, but what he did. And Shenzhen planting seeds that you can experience life in a, a magical way. It's not predetermined by our culture or our families. We have the option. We have the choice. We can change. We can cultivate. And then little Houston Smith sat down and wrote a book, and little Kusala read it. And that started the ball rolling. So the recognition that we are all in this together, the recognition that because all things are interconnected and interdependent, you can never take full credit for anything because there's a multitude of people behind you and a multitude of situations through synchronicity or coincidence that lead you in a particular direction. And to be able to be in your 60s and look back at your life and go, whoa, how lucky was I? Because I had the right people at the right time in my life. So it is with much gratitude that I look at my life now. And the main stimulus for that was this interview with UCLA.